All right, well, hey, good morning. Hey, it's great to see you guys here this morning. Uh, my name is Seth. I'm uh, one of the pastors uh, here at Salem. And uh, we are uh, coming out of a, a four-week uh, series in prayer. We're moving towards fall. Uh, one of the things that I uh, realized kind of in these, these last six months that we've been preparing and getting ready for uh, this fall is that, you know, we've, we've spent some time um, in God's Word in the Sermon on the Mount, but we have not spent an extended portion of time uh, in, like, really in the gospel, like the person and the works and the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so this fall, uh, that's where we're going, and it's going to be really, really good. And I'm really, really excited to study uh, the book of Mark uh, along with you guys. We'll have booklets and all that stuff again as we're jumping into this kind of that season together. But in these, in these few weeks as we prep to kind of lead up to that as, you know, college is beginning, school is starting, right? We're jumping kind of a little bit back into chaos. There's this question of like, hey, what are my next steps? Like, how do I connect and where do I fit uh, at church? How do I become connected and involved uh, at, at church? Um, and so we're going to be looking at kind of three different things. One, this first week we'll talk about kind of the, the importance or the significance of gathering weekly, like what it means to come to church, why come to church. Uh, next week, uh, Ken uh, is going to preach on connecting, you know, like, you know, how to get connected uh, or the, just the idea of connecting regularly, which, you know, praise Jesus, Ken is back and I no longer have to carry his slack. What a slacker, you know, like sabbatical man, those guys. So, hey, we're glad that he's back, but he's going to get to share a little bit uh, about uh, what happened, uh, you know, what God did in and through him on on his time, and, and that last week we'll look at investing purposely, and then we'll kind of jump in kind of Labor Day weekend with intro to Mark, and, and uh, that next week we'll really kick it off and just really have a great time. So we're really, really looking forward uh, to that. But as we think about this morning, you know, this idea, the significance, the importance of, of gathering weekly, why? It kind of begs this question, like, why go to church? Like, like there's a bazillion reasons. Like, you could wake up and go, man, my toe kind of hurts. Eh. Just not gonna go to church, you know? Like, there's like a bazillion, re- you know, uh, you know, I want an extended breakfast, you know, whatever it is, I don't know. Like, there's so many reasons why we wouldn't go to church, and so maybe it's like this question of like, why? Like, what's the significance and the importance of, of going uh, to, uh, to church? And, and you know, you might, some of you might go, well, but here's the reality, Seth, is that, is that the Bible says you're supposed to. And you look at Hebrews 10, it's like, do not give up meeting together, right? So it's like, yeah, I get that. Like, I, like I totally understand that, that when God designs something and tells us to do it, it's probably for our good, <laughs> right? You know, like God is the creator, all good things come from above. And so he's like, hey, church is good. This is the rhythm. It's probably a good thing. But, but when you call, like, if you're just like to play the obedience card, that doesn't really fly. Doesn't, right? Where you just be obedient to God. You know, like I'm at home, I'm a dad, I get this. You go home and, hey, Eden, you know, could we, you know, could we pick up, you know, our stuff over here? No. Well, you know, it'd be really, really nice if, if you would clean it and, you know, kind of, you, you know, you clean up after yourselves and we want to be a good steward of, you know, of our stuff and make sure our house is clean. No. Eden, didn't you know that the Bible just says, honor your father and mother? You know, like, come on, just play the obedience card. <laughs> no. You know, like, 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 you think about the motives of the human heart, right? The, the obedience card just doesn't cut it. So, like, like, why? Like, even though it should, we know that it should if it's God's design. If God says do it, we should be like, yeah, okay, I get it. Let's do that. 
But in the, in the busyness, the chaos, and the brokenness of the world that we live in, there's, there's better reasons as we, as we really need to wrestle through those things. So um, I don't want to start with anything like too or major depressing, but I, I want to start with this, this reality. There's this reality. I was reading an article uh, this week, and it said this. It said, if you look at the past 25 years, uh, roughly um, 40 million people have uh, departed or left the church. 25 years, 40 million people. That's a pretty staggering number. Like, I've always known, we've always known that there is a group of unchurched people who, who never really want to step foot inside of a church, right? It's like there's, there's, like there's non-believer repellent at the door. It's like what you do with your house with, like, insects. You know, it's like, they don't, I don't want to ever go through that. So we know that there's an unchurched people, but now that we're coming to grips with this reality that there's a de-churched people, that there's a group of people who are disassociating with the church. And the research shows that it's not like they just woke up one day and were like, you know, you know what, I'm just done. You know, it's, it's not like that. It's kind of like you get in a car and you start driving down this slow decline. And what they're finding is that through this research is that by the time they get to the end, they realize that they're totally disconnected from church and really maybe even disconnected from Jesus, but they didn't even realize that they were doing it. It's like all of a sudden it just kind of happens. And you get to the spot, you're like, man, like church really is not significant for me. And it makes you wonder, like, gosh, and you think 20 years from now, 40 years from now, 60 years from now, 80 years from now, is there going to be a church around for your kids, for your grandkids, for their kids and their kids, right? Like this is a tremendously, it really is significant, but also really just because these are the rhythms of Jesus, right? This is so important why God calls us to come uh, together. So I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but three weeks ago, um, there was kind of this event, this phenomenon that happened um, up in Seattle, okay? Um, and it happens to do with these people called Swifties. Does anybody know who Swifties are? Swifties, it's not like some sweeper, swiffer guy, you know, it's Swifties are Taylor Swift enthusiasts, okay? Let's just say with that, and you guys, I know, like, like, I'm just gonna put myself out there and say, yes, and I know you know this, I listen to Taylor Swift while I mow the lawn, okay? It's like, I don't agree with her, with her theology, but it keeps me in touch with pop culture, and they're catchy, you know? Like, and so if you ever drive by and you see me doing this while I'm mowing, it's probably Taylor Swift. Um, so, but like, here's the deal, like these people, right, they go to this concert, and something, something happens, this phenomenon happens, as they gather everybody together, they start this concert, and what ends up happening is that the, the concert is so loud that it registers as a 2.3 on the Richter scale. Okay, guys, these, this is like a seismograph, is something that is designed to detect when tectonic plates, which are far, 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 far below ground, these big, massive stone plates, when there's freedom and give, everything is fine. But when they, when they collide and they cause this disruption and they grind and push, that's when earthquakes happen. That's what a seismograph is for, not for Swifties. <laughs> and yet, from a Taylor Swift concert, 2.3 <laughs> on the Richter scale, that's incredible. It's fascinating to me to think about this. By the way, the largest known thing that ever happened before that was in 2011 in the exact same spot in Seattle when Marshawn Lynch, um, and, uh, and he scored a touchdown and, and the whole city erupted. Here's the difference, is that they clap and cheer and rah, beast mode, Marshawn Lynch, for like 30 seconds. Taylor Swift concerts last for how long? Hours. <laughs> Hours. And so they virtually doubled the impact 
of, of, that, of that, that former one in 2011. And it's just fascinating to me to think about this, right? These tectonic plates. And here's what happens is that, um, you know, like it registers 2.3. And, and you go, gosh, like you start to think, you start to think about what's happening and you, you begin to actually call into question why in the world we would have Taylor Swift concerts on the San Andreas Fault, okay? Let's stop that. Like that should be a learning lesson. In fact, I think I heard somebody told me after service that, that Los Angeles called and asked her to cancel the Los Angeles one. I'm like, they didn't say that, but I'm guessing it's because they don't want California to fall into the ocean, you know? Um, but here's this, like, you think about this, and you go, so we begin to learn things, and you go, okay, as I think about the collective group of people, these thousands of people coming, to go, coming together around Taylor Swift and her music and what it represents and the things that it does inside of their hearts, it makes you wonder about the strength and the power of what could happen at church. Because we're talking about something so much deeper and so much bigger and grander than Taylor Swift's fancy music. You know, like, and so like, as we think about this, right, we go, what are we devoted to in understanding the strength of our collective experience, like the, our collective strength, this, this interdependence as we come together devoted around something. And you go, as you look at those people, wherever they are, whether they're unchurched or de-churched or whoever they are, it's like, do you think that the obedience card is going to work with those people? Hey, Hebrews 10, 24, 25, get to church. Like that doesn't work. Right? That's not the motive. So we begin to wrestle, like, what is church and why? Why would somebody choose to come to church? I want to take you back to uh, Acts chapter 2. I know that we were in Acts uh, this last fall, and so this is a little bit of a duplicate, but it's going to be a lot of different content. As we think about this, like, I want to bring you to the birth of the church. It's in Acts chapter 2, um, 42 uh, to 47. But, but while you guys are turning, if you've got Bibles, I want to set the context for you, okay? And, and, and this is going to take a moment, so just kind of settle in and listen, the year was roughly 30 AD, right? It begins with Jesus when he's in the northern parts of, of Galilee, and he says, he goes, he sets his face towards Jerusalem. I set his face, like he is moving towards his death, and so he travels down, he comes through Bethany, he would have crested the top of the Mount of Olives, and looking down at the city, he begins this journey of what's today known as the Via Dolorosa, which means the way of the cross. And as he rides his donkey down the hill, his disciples are cheering him on, rah, 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 the coming kingdom of Messiah and the expectation of the people was that a new king would rise and dethrone Rome. And so as Luke records it, the entire city, half a million people who are there for the Passover feast from the known world, a half a million people are stirred, wondering, is this the guy? Is this the guy who's going to change life for us? And you got to wonder if that hits something on the Richter scale. But see, less than a week later, all of that noise, all of that intrigue would move into silence because less than a week later, he, Jesus is being led through the alleyways outside of the temple. But instead of a new golden crown, he has a crown of thorns. 
And after his clothes have been stripped and he's been flogged and he's been beaten, he's carrying a wooden cross that digs into his back with all of the strength that he can just to get to the top of the hill called Golgotha. And it's there in this anticlimactic moment that he's nailed to the cross. He's raised up into the sky. And for hours, Jesus suffers with each push, a gasp of air until his body finally surrenders. And he's jabbed in the side with a spear. And as water gushes from his body, he's clearly dead. And then he's laid in the tomb. And for three days, his followers are besides themselves. The women are a wreck. The disciples are dumbfounded. How could we have gotten this wrong? But then the miraculous happened. Because Jesus was raised from the dead. And he appears first to Mary, who then tells all of the disciples. And for days and weeks, he he appears to other people and lets them know of his return. But in these last moments, he takes his disciples, he goes back up to the same mountain where he started the Via Dolorosa. He goes back up, he takes his disciples, and he says these words. He says, go and make disciples. And he says, while I'm gone, wait in the upper room for the promised Holy Spirit. And then in an astonishing moment, as a cloud comes or whatever it was that that happened, he disappears and he ascends back to the Father, his rightful throne. And so for days then, the disciples go back down in Jerusalem. They obey Jesus, their master, their teacher, their discipler, and they wait in an upper room until in a moment, in dramatic fashion, at, the, at the, the, uh, the festival of Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit fills the room. In the, in the New Testament, the word for spirit is pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. You go back into the Old Testament, it's ruach. But both of them mean spirit or breath or life. And so in the Old Testament, when you look at that moment, the Genesis creation moment, you find the spirit of God, the ruach, right? It's like ru with bread coming out of your mouth, right? Ruach, you know? And then it's like, there he is in this creative moment. And it's like God over creation goes, and breathes breath and life into the world. And then you fast forward thousands of years to the upper room, and as the Spirit fills the room, it's like God goes, and he breathes new breath into his disciples, into his people, right? And it says, as a result of this, in this moment for these people, in this context, as a result of being filled with the Spirit, right, everyone can now speak a new language, which causes a whole commotion, which makes me wonder if that was on the Richter scale, even the slightest bit, because here's what happens, is that thousands of people begin to gather around this place going, what is going on? What's happening? What is all of this commotion? Jesus is dead, right? Oh, no, he's raised and, you know, all these things. And so Peter, in this moment, Peter stands up. Now, if you're a disciple, you're like, Pete, Pete, Pete. No, oh, no, Pete. Peter, Peter. Because at least eight times in the Gospels, Peter is more familiar with the taste of his own foot in his mouth than he is bread. Because Peter doesn't do it great. 
And so as he stands up, he's like, guys, guys, I got this. No, Pete, Pete. And he starts talking, and all of a sudden they're like, whoa, what, what? this is incredible. Like, what happened? And Peter, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, he shares this message about the good news of Jesus to thousands of people, to this gathered crowd. And these people, they know nothing about Jesus because they're from like the known world here for Passover. And all of a sudden, they hear about Jesus in their own tongue, and they're like, man, this is crazy. And then they hear the gospel, and then they go, man, what shall we do? And Peter looks at them, and he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And in that day, 3,000 people became Christ's followers and the church was born. 3,000 people and the church was born. You see, when I think about this, right, like so oftentimes if you were to talk about church with somebody on the streets and say, like, you know, what do you know about church? What do we typically associate? We talk about Christmas and we talk about Easter, right? And rightly so, because Christmas is about Jesus, right? It's about the Son of God who's co-equal, co-divine, co-eternal. He's all of those things. He's, he's perfect in all form, just like the Father. And then he comes down, he surrenders and puts on flesh, and, right? And then he lives a perfect and sinless life only to, to die on a cross and be raised. And all of a sudden, you're at Easter and you're like, hey, that's the church. But we know that church is so much more than Christmas and Easter, I got a text from a buddy this week, um, and he said, hey, Seth, let me know what you think about this. Our church is trying to connect with people who may be not at church, and so we uh, are, are using like a billboard by the Dairy Queen. He said, tell me what you think about these words, and it said this. It said, now holding services on Sundays other than Christmas and Easter, <laughs> 10 a.m., <laughs> I mean, I read it. I was like, yeah, that's so funny. You're joking, right? No, no. You can't say that. I mean, that's funny. That's clever, but no. Like, and he's like, by the way, he's like, I mean, our marketer's like, we should be provocative. I'm like, yeah, that's provocative, but it gives people zero reason to come to church. It doesn't tell people why they should be there. It just says, hey, we know that you're not here. You know, like, and, but we know that the church is so much more than Christmas or Easter. And when we think about the early church, guys, right, what happens in this moment, right? Is that there's, this, there's this time, right? And Peter gives this message, and 3,000 people come to know Christ, right? And it creates this massive ripple effect, right? And it's just this big circles that are happening, right? And then it keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. By the way, this is like the design. This is the Acts 1-8. When Jesus says, go wait for like for the promised Holy Spirit, here's the thing. Here's the result of how the Holy Spirit's going to change the church. He says, is that you're going to be my witnesses. That's going to start right here, and then it's going to go here, and then it's going to go there, and then it's going to go here, and then it's going to go there. And there's this gospel, Acts 1-8 gospel journey that just goes and goes, right? And people return to their homelands, right? As they return back to their jobs after the Passover feast, right? This is the way that it's designed to be. 3,000 people, though, come to know Christ. 
And if you think that when, when the people who are in that space and they're like, Peter, we heard your message. This is convicting. What do we do? And as the disciples see 3,000 people come to know Christ, do you think that they were like, what do we do? Do you think that Peter like, woke up? He's like, guys, I got a, I got a good feeling about today. Um, what, what would we do? I mean, in theory, what would we do if 3,000 people came to know Christ today? Like, what would be our plan? No, like, like 3,000 people come to know Christ, and they're like, what do we do? So they go to the drawing board. They go to the drawing board. And what happens, what follows in Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, is really this. It's a description of what the church did to pass along four essential rhythms of Jesus in a larger setting, in this larger environment that can help people grow in Christ while discipleship takes place. These four essential rhythms. They're like, we're just going to do the best that we can. Because it's like, you know, like, okay, let's just say 3,000 people just for, you know, okay. Let's just say that, you know, you, you look at the group and you're like 3,000 people. Okay, okay. Oh, well, there's 120 of us. Um, what if we each took uh, 12 disciples in the way that Jesus did it with us? Okay, 12 times 120, that's 1440. That's, that's a lot, but that's a, three, that's a three and a half year journey. So you like send 1,400 people off on a three and a half year journey you're like, good luck on that. Oh, by the way, the rest of you, the 1,600 people, we don't know what to do with you. Like, it's just so big that they have no clue. So you go back to the drawing board. We say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take these four rhythms of Jesus, and we're going to do it together. And it says that they're devoted to these things. Look at this. These are the things that they have in common. Look at verse 42. It says, and they devoted, them to them, or they, vote, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And you read that, and you're like, yeah, okay, Seth, I know, I get it. We're, so, so what we're devoted to, like what they have in common is the Bible. What they have in common is prayer. Well, yeah, that's true, and I get that. But like, that's just the what. What's behind the what is the Who? Because it's not like it happens in a vacuum. And so as they come back to this, really what they're doing is saying is that we are passing on the ways of Jesus. That's really who we are devoted to. And here's what that looks like in the teachings, right, and everything else. But who we are devoted to, the one person that we have in common is Jesus Christ. No matter how different we are, whether you're a Swifty or not a Swifty, right? Whatever your story, whatever your past, whatever, whatever that is, right? However much you know about the Bible or don't know about the Bible, right? Like, is that what we have in common is Jesus Christ. And it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the first thing that we learn about this is that this church is that it's, about a, it's a learning church. Like, this is a group of people who are eager to learn, right? Like, these are, the disciples were shaped by the life and by the words of Jesus. And so, as they gather together, it's like, hey, teach us about Jesus. Which, by the way, right, none of these people know hardly anything about Jesus. So, it's not like Peter gets up and gives this super grand, right, teaching. It's like he's just teaching about Jesus because they know nothing, right? 
And, and yet, as they're learning, they got to be thinking, man, like, like everything that I'm learning, like this is something that I've been longing for all of my life. And I didn't even know it. And so it's like, like you're eating it up going, teach me, teach me about Jesus. And yet, like you and I both know is that learning is about so much more than acquiring biblical content. Let's just imagine that you go to a school today and you see, you know, you watch it, you're observing, and a teacher's up front and they say, hey, here's the deal, I'm going to teach you um, a complex math equation, okay? Uh, and so they do it, like I couldn't even pretend to, to do one, I should have just gotten one or copied one from someone, but like blah, 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 okay, that's a complex math equation, okay? And, and they look at it and they say, hey, here's the deal, who understands this? The kid in the back is like, hey, I understand it, great, good job, let's move on. No, why? What's the teacher going to do? Show me. Show me. Yeah, you know, if that teacher were to come to me and they'd be like, hey, Seth, show me how you did that. Uh, you know, uh, well, um, uh, yeah, 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 uh, A plus B equals C. Seth, you're in the wrong class. You just combine the alphabet with first grade math. Like, that's it. You know, like, like the same thing is so true in our spiritual life. Like you haven't learned it until you've done it. You haven't learned it until you have done it. And so they are being immersed in the teaching, in the words of Jesus, but they're also being immersed in the life of Jesus, this continuous process of learning together as they work to put this new life and new rhythm into practice. And so as we hold this, guys, one of the things I love about our denomination and our church is that we look at this and we go, man, this is where it's at. This is God's holy inspired word and it is so fundamentally important that we be in today's culture a bible believing church but it's another thing to be a bible living church bible believing bible living can all can be two different things and so here, what else? So they're devoted to the teaching. They're also devoted to fellowship. You're like, oh, Seth, I got this one. I know what this is about. I have coffee and donuts every Sunday morning. And I'm like, great. I love being out there. That's not what it's talking about, okay? If you were to go get Strong's, like, you know, dictionary and look up the word koinonia, you might, I'm a hot dish. Wow, interesting. That's fascinating. I didn't know. Not the original Greek, koinonia, means hot dish, you know? Like, here's the deal. Like, koinonia, this, this fellowship in Scripture of the church is so much more. Guys, here's what it means. It means mutual interdependence. Guys, this is basically a sales pitch for groups. <laughs> Be in a space. Find a spot at the table. And Ken will talk about this more next week. Find a spot at the table where you have to be mutually interdependent, where you guys have to do life together, where you learn together about hearing and doing like what Jesus asks us to do, to do it together. Because here's the deal, fellowship, guys, fellowship is never free because fellowship costs something. Fellowship is about being a contributor as much as we are a consumer. Right? I, I love this, you know, in, in Hebrews 10, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier, you know, we could use this, go to this as, you know, hey, God says that we need to be at church, right? This is the obedience factor. Let us consider how to stir one another up 
to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, right? The day Jesus coming back and the whole judgment thing and eternal life setting in, right? Don't give up meeting together, but you look at this and go, instead of it being about an obedience factor, you look at this and just ask yourself a practical question. How do you do this if we're not together? How do we encourage, how do we stir one another up to love and good works? How do we encourage one another if we're not together? Like there's this thing about being devoted to fellowship. So they're devoted to it. And they're also devoted to breaking of the bread. You know, somewhere along the line, um, this actually became a pseudonym for the Lord's Supper, right? Or for communion. And so we've kind of detached this from daily living, right? And this is kind of the way it is. But back in the day, right, breaking of the bread was just them having a meal together. Like you look at Jesus and his ministry, like how many times do you see Jesus just meeting people for a meal? Like, like all of a sudden, like these people show up and they find Jesus with tax. And they're like, what are you doing here? Map should have known you eat, pe- eat, with, eat with people. I almost said eat people. That's really wrong. Don't say that, you know, eat with people, right? You know, come on right? So, so here's Jesus. He's like this breaking of the bread, right? And, and I'm sure that when they have these meals together, as they break it, they're remembering Jesus' death and his resurrection. I'm sure that's probably a part of it, but it's just this constant, these meals together over and over and over. And yet somewhere along the line, what we did is that we separated it from life and we put it into the church, which is a great rhythm. Once a month, we do communion first Sunday of every month. That's a really good rhythm. But can I just say, this is talking about life. This is talking about the daily meals. And the last thing is that they're devoted to prayer. And you go, man, like, I get that. That's super important. We just spent four weeks on prayer. Guys, at the end of the day, there's nothing that you can do to demonstrate your dependence on God more than prayer. And they got that. They're like, at the end of the day, man, like, here's what we got to do. We got to pray. Because we are needy people. We need to learn how to lean into God the Father. That's so important. So there's these things that they're devoted to. And when you look at devoted, in the original language, here's what it means. Devotion means constant attention to something. How do you constantly attend to something when our brains and hearts are following so many things? That's the hard part, right? Because when we are devoted to something, what that means is that we have to set something else aside in order to be devoted, to give it that constant attention. And we know, our culture knows all about being devoted, don't we? You're like, Seth, I know about devotion. I check my fantasy football 25 times a day. I know that you do. And here's the deal. I love it too. So I get it. I understand. But if we were to reflect, okay, let's just reflect for a moment and say, isn't that maybe part of the problem, Seth? Isn't that part of the problem, that we're devoted to maybe other things, right? I can't think of, like, you think about humanity, guys, here's the deal. Like, we are really good at devoting ourselves to things. The problem is, is that we end up devoting ourselves to the wrong 
things. And maybe it's not the wrong things. Maybe it's, it's just lesser things because this is the Romans, right? It's that we exchange the glory of the creator for the created. And so when you think about, like, like when I picture myself and I like, you know, like somehow I'm standing in front of God and I see God, if I could, if I could, in all, all of his glory, in all of his majesty, in everything that I am meant to behold about his goodness and holiness and staring at, I'm like, oh, this is so good. Find a football. Right? It's like we're just distracted and we devote and we find ourselves going to these other and lesser things. By the way, guys, we are really good in our culture about being devoted to things, but it's really only that we're devoted to it until something better comes along. And that's just part of it. Right? Like for me in my youth, sometimes I wonder if for me I was like, I was like a sprinkler. Like one of those sprinklers that because you know, you just never really stop for five seconds to really actually be devoted to something. When you devote yourself, it's to set aside and go, man, this is it. This is the priority. And you know, so I think for, that for me in my own life, as I think about like when I was younger, like I loved Jesus and I loved the church. But if I were to be honest, I also loved my life. And so the question is, how do those things blend? And for me, in my younger years, and even still today, one of the things that can be so hard for me and for us is this, is that I'm going to be devoted to God on this day during this hour so that I can be devoted to that thing on that day for that hour. And they don't actually blend. We separate Jesus and the church from Sunday to the Monday to Saturday. And those things can be disconnected, right? right? And this, this is a challenging thing for us, like in our culture. And so as I think about the, the difficulty of this, if I come back to this, right? So what's designed to be an Acts 1-8 thing, right? What happens is the church is born is that there's this ripple effect. It's like God dropping a spiritual rock in the ocean that ripple, 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 right? Ripple, ripple, ripple that goes out into the world. But if we think about this from a weekly standpoint, you go, okay, what if this is Sunday? This is Monday. This is Tuesday. This is Wednesday. This is Thursday. This is Friday. And that's Saturday. You see, what oftentimes happens is that we get into this zone, right? We come to church on a Sunday, and then we, we get into Monday, and maybe Monday, you wake up, and you're like, man, I am so filled. This was, yesterday was a great day. It was a great weekend. God's really speaking to me in my cave time. This morning was really good, and all of a sudden, you're like, you know what? I hate my job. And all of a sudden, like Monday becomes harder. And then Tuesday, that email comes in, you're like, ah. And Wednesday, you have that meeting with the coworker that you just don't like. And then Thursday, it's whatever. But by the time you get to Friday and Saturday, you're just exhausted. And maybe you're like, man, but this doesn't even take, this doesn't even consider the fact that I have a kid who's in 18 million sports. This is how I feel. And it's so hard and it's exhausting. And we come to this. And in the midst of all of this, right, is this Acts 1-8 journey that's supposed to be happening as we invest in our coworkers, right? As we're bringing the gospel to where we live and where we work, where we study and where we play. And that's supposed to be happening. And so all throughout this week, by the time you get to the end of the week, you're like, man, I, I, oh, man, I need to come back to church. What I need is to be 
fulfilled. And so sometimes I think that this ends up being happening. Guys, and this is just a reality. From a practical standpoint, guys, I wonder if we just, we're, too, we're too busy or we are too worn out. We're too busy or we are too worn out to not go to church. It's like saying that you're too busy to not pray. Like, I just got no time. I can't do it. No, no, no. If that's true, that's the very reason why you need it. We need to be at church. We need to gather weekly, right? Because here's the deal, right? Is that, is that we come to church to get what we need most. Whether you're worn out, you're tired, you're broken, you found out that, that, you had, that you, there's something going on in your life. You've got a relative. You found out on Tuesday that a relative is now, has now got cancer. It's cancer's recurring. You found out that you're, you're losing your job. You found out, like whatever, it's like there's these difficulties and hardships of life. Or maybe you've just been working so hard to bring the gospel to your workplace, but at the end of the week, you've been overflowing and overflowing and then overflowing, and your cave time supplements that, but you're like, man, I got to come back to church to get what we we need because this is the way that God designed it to get what we need. I just want to look at this. These last, I've got half a page of notes, and so the rest of this goes really quick. But I want you to see how what they have in common changes their community because community is built on what? What you have in common, right? What do they have in common? Jesus. That's what we need most, by the way. What we need is. Jesus, and that's what church is for. Look at this in verse 43. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the, the apostles. What does that look like? Does that look like learning, them doing it together, devoted to the teachings, right? Do you see that? The hearing and the doing together. Verse 44, All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their proceeds to all as any had need. Do you see the fellowship there? Do you see the mutual interdependence, the generosity? You see what they have in common is changing how their community actually lives. Look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Do you see the breaking of the bread and prayers, right? It's this daily thing. They go back together. It's what they have in common that reshapes and defines their community, which is Jesus. Now, we need to stop and pause for a second because here's the deal. Guys, is that I know that some of you will probably come and say, this is what the church needs more of. We need more uh, of this, like gathering every day. We need to be doing this and this and this and this. And let's just push pause and, and define that, that some things in Scripture are prescriptive and some of them are descriptive. What's prescriptive in this passage is the idea of being devoted to teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. What's being descriptive, what's describing how that in that moment changed their community is these things. We don't have to have a church that looks exactly like that. There are good things, but it's describing what could happen. You're like, Seth, we should meet every day. Really? You want to meet every day? Every day? You want to know why that they can meet every day? Because they're at a week-long festival. What happens at the end of the festival? Hey, guys, we're just going to stay here in the temple court. Do it every day. Every day. For the rest of our lives. What about your job? Nah, who cares? You know? <laughs> like, every day. Right? And, and they're selling everything. You know, like, how much stuff do you think that they brought with them? 
You know, like there's some guy, like they're showing up and they got 3,000 people. It's like, hey man, you need some of that? Man, what a coincidence. I brought my brand new, nice first century sofa. But guess what? I don't need it. I'll sell it. You can have it. Like they're selling whatever they had with them because they live in Ephesus in the known world. They don't have that much stuff with them. That doesn't mean that that's not good, and that doesn't mean that that's not necessary at times, but is it saying go and sell all of your possessions to give to everybody? No, it's not what it's saying. It's a good thing, but it's not prescriptive. You want to meet on the Temple Mount? Can I remind you that people with weapons, if you open your Bible, people with weapons will come and say, "Mm, no, and you'll be like, okay, not going to do that. Which, by the way, here's my plug for Israel. The next week... We're going to be doing reflections on Israel uh, back in uh, the Fellowship Hall, 12 to 1.30. We would love to share with you some of the things uh, that we learned, uh, how that's making an impact already, how we feel like Christ is shaping, being shaped inside of us, also about how you might be able to go uh, in the future. So thumbs up to that. Here's the end. Here's how this ends in chapter 2, verse 47. It goes from what they have in common to how the community is shaped and then how that community becomes so radically different from the community that the rest of the world has ever known that when they look at Christian community, they go, that's uncommon. Do you like that? Uncommon community. What do they have in common? It's Jesus. It's Jesus that makes their community uncommon. Look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, when we step out into the world, what happens here leaves here. We go, we take that community. The world looks at us and they say, what? You tell me that what? Come on, that, there's no way that type of a community is possible That's not real. That's so unheard of, that's so uncommon. And yet, that's the Jesus community. That can be Salem. It can be our community. You see, I love this quote from Gary Mays, and he said this. This is when God designed the church, he designed it in such a way that when the world looked at it, they would find a new way of life. That's the community that goes out from here. So as we think about why go to church, let's put this up on the screen. Why go to church? It's this, is that we come to church to get what we need most. So whether you had a broken week, a hard and difficult broken week, or you've been overflowing in your job, bringing the gospel, whatever it is, right? You come to church because then this is what I need most so that when you leave, you can give the world what it needs most. Do you see how that works? So as we do this, right, we remember that as a church, right, these are all these different people Right? And so this is a different Monday, a different Tuesday, a different Wednesday. We all have these different stories. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We all have these different stories, right? And each of us are living out the gospel where God has designed us to do it. And we get to that final day over here. We're like, oh man, I'm exhausted. Here's what I need. I need to come back to church so that I can get what I need so I can go do it again. Why gather together? Why go to church? Because you get what you need most so that you can give the world what it needs most. We are designed to come together and then to go out. To come together and to go out. To come together and to go out. Let's pray. 
Lord, as we started this morning, we started with this idea of Taylor Swift and the Richter scale. Lord, it is not our goal to be the loudest church. That's not who we are. And we know that when we gather on a Sunday, it's not the loudness that comes through the microphones. It's not, you know, the loudness of the chatter or the people talking that causes. What happens is that, is that we come together and what we, what we are expecting, what we're praying for, what we are hoping for is that you are stirring something so deep inside of each of us that it's like these tectonic plates that are rubbing up against each other that it's causing movement and it's not it's not a it's not a 2.3 magnitude that's scheduled or reg, registered by how loud we are but it's by the spiritual growth that comes out of this place because we want to be a people who come together who can be fully known who can be fully loved no matter our story, no matter our brokenness, that this is a safe place where we come together to get what we need so that as we leave this place, we don't disconnect church and faith from the rest of our week, but that it ripple effects Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday and so forth until we come back together again. Lord, we thank you for the church. We thank you for each other, for the people you placed in our lives, and we thank you most importantly, most of all, for Jesus Christ. We love you. In your name we pray, amen.